Father, we're thankful that the Word of God is <clears throat> sharper than any sword and that it pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and is therefore a judge or a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We thank you that your Holy Spirit, who exists today, who indwells every one of us who has accepted Christ, will take this finished canon of Scripture and open it further to our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, let's begin by uh, turning to Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. I just want to begin tonight uh, looking at some of the problematic passages we discussed in connection with the impeccability of Christ. And before we... Um, well, let's just... We, we've, just to review, we've looked at the birth of the king and in connection with that, we've talked about the hypostatic union doctrine. Now, I'm, by the fall, the next time we... We'll have one more class after this week and finish out for the spring. But for the fall, I hope to get an um, overhead transparency constructed with these four events and the doctrines and so, associated. So you just have to kind of mentally remember that the birth of the king introduces into history the God-man. And because he is the God-man, because he is true humanity, undiminished deity in one person, that sets up everything else that we study in connection with Jesus Christ. And we studied uh, his kenosis in this chapter in connection with his life. We said that the kenosis is his emptying. What was his emptying? His emptying was submission to the will of God, including the independent use of his attributes. So the, God the Son, when he became incarnate, could have exercised, could have, exercised his omnipotence on different occasions. For example, when Satan tempted the Lord Jesus, turn those stones into bread. He could have done that. But he refrained from doing that because it wasn't his father's will. And he accepted that role. So kenosis reveals the attribute of humility. And it shows that in the Christian worldview, the key or cardinal virtue is the virtue of humility toward God, of submission to his will. And everything else rolls from there. That has to be in place. And the process of moving from pride or arrogance to humility is repentance. That's the definition, or that's a definition of repentance. So, Jesus Christ always and forever demonstrated this attribute in everything he did. But having studied the doctrine of kenosis, we move then on to a second doctrine called the doctrine of impeccability. That is, Christ's perfection. Impeccable. No, nothing to be accused of. And... We started this section by saying, on page 62 in the notes, we gave a series of Bible references to which we're looking here in the introduction tonight, of those times and places where the Lord Jesus Christ seemed to show behavior that would be criticized today. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, we read, after he got through in the Sermon on the Mount saying you shouldn't call people fools, he says, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks of that which fills the heart. 
That's a pretty tough saying. How would you like somebody to say that to you? Um, you snakes. And it's a, it's a, it's, the snake is a metaphor for you know what. So this is what he's basically calling people in the street when he's confronting them. And we show these passages to show that it's not quite so easy to talk about the Christ life when you're confronting with passages like this. Because people have, a, have ten, we all tend to do this. We talk about Christ and we have this gooey image of who he was and how he acted. And we need to correct that with a text of scripture because he wasn't just all a pile of goo. He had confrontational aspects in his personality. And uh, we can go further. One of the most uh, interesting ones is a passage in Matthew 15, 26. Um, well, it's several in Matthew. Matthew 15, 7. He uh, calls uh, the people he's addressing hypocrites. He's judging them, pardon the expression. He is evaluating their character. He's not slandering them. He's telling them what they are. They are hypocrites. And so it's a very truthful expression. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophecy of you saying. And he applies the scripture to them. But it's true. Um, but in Matthew 15, if you go down further, uh, a Canaanite woman in verse 22 came out from that region and said her daughter was demon-possessed. And in verse 23, because she's a Gentile, you see the reaction of his Jewish followers. He didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him. They asked him over and over. Apparently, she was a very persistent woman. Kept saying it over and over. And so the disciples said, let's get her out of here. For she's shouting out after us. And I have to tell this lady to go get lost. Forget it. And it wasn't once or twice. Apparently it was repetitive because in the Greek it's the imperfect tense which is a continual process. This went on for some time. And uh, he answered and said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, that's a true expression because you remember that the Messiah's role in history was to confront the people of God who had been called out from among the Gentiles for a special purpose to bring in the kingdom of God. This is the purpose of Israel. Remember, that was the counterculture that came out of the Noahic civilization centuries before. And they were to get ready for this next act. The next act was the coming of the God-man Messiah. And the God-man Messiah was to approach the nation and offer them the kingdom of God, which he did over and over again in the Gospels. But that nation rejected. And then history took on a new phase. Not new to God, but certainly new from the perspective of man. Because what do you do with the problematical situation of the Messiah being rejected? The New Testament opens up a sort of a can of worms here because the smooth, continuous progress in history seems to be broken at this point because the nation rejects the Messiah. And now what happens? And Satan thought he had it aced because he had stopped, he thought, the plan of God. He thought at last, he had tried over and over and over to thwart and to destroy the Jew. Because Genesis 12, 1 to 3, remember, promises the fact that whoever curses Israel will be cursed. So, 
Satan had tried genocide, and on a smaller micro scale, it was a genocidal thing that he tried when the, he killed all the babies around Bethlehem to try to make sure that this Messiah guy was cut off. So the whole thrust of this history approaches this moment. And then he thinks he has it made because the nation does reject. They do respond to his inclinations. Judas Iscariot is there as his agent. Judas is an, uh, conducts an act of treason. And successfully gets it maneuvered around so Christ gets killed. Or apparently killed. We'll talk more about the death of Christ in the fall. Actually, Jesus Christ gave up his life. It wasn't taken from him. And it was a unique death. The death of Christ on the cross was not the same as we would die on the cross. That's a whole other story. But it appeared that way. And so what happened was that God, being the master chess player, moves a piece, Satan jumps the piece, thinking he's got clearance. And what happens, he rolls into a trap, and out of this so-called catastrophe comes the salvation of the world. Because accomplished, with the aid of Satan, is the complete payment for the sins of the world through the cross of Christ. So it's an amazing situation that was set up, Satan being a participant in it, and yet he meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So at this point, in the Gospels, remember this is Matthew 15. So the rejection of the nation hasn't come yet in its fullness. So in verse 24, Jesus correctly responds to this woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus was not sent to the world. That came after the resurrection, after the cross. But at this point, only to the Jew. But she came and she began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, how's that for a nice Christ-like statement? See, these are in the Gospels. And when you read the Bible, you have to project yourself in your imagination, your mind's eye, back to seeing this situation happen on the street. You've got to see that. And, and this is what it was. And, and many people aren't prepared to see this side of Jesus because they don't read carefully the text of Scripture and the portrait the Holy Spirit is painting here of the Savior. Of course, he's doing it to bring out of her things. And this is a whole, could be a whole sermon in itself because this is how he works with us oftentimes. Um, when we pray to him and we don't seem to get an answer and you, you wonder and you seem to get the cold shoulder, what turns out afterwards is that that was a little maneuver on his part to get you to do something. And this is one of those little neat give-and-takes situations going on here. So he says to her, apparently impolitely and rudely, it is not good to take the children's bread, that is the Jews. The bread of the Jews is salvation. It's the Messiah. So it's not good to take the, the spiritual blessings of the Jews and throw it to the dogs. That is, give it to the Gentiles. Very Jewish, very Jewish here in these Gospels. This is a Jewishness of Jesus. And remember, the Gospels were written after the epistles. So this shows you that from start to finish, the Lord Jesus Christ was a Jew of the Jews. And the church has lost something when it loses that Judaic background. But she said, very quick-witted woman here, not to be outwitted, she replies to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed in the crumbs which fall from their master's table. 
Now this woman had her theology. She recognized somehow the Holy Spirit had worked in her heart so she recognized something about Jesus. Because you notice the position she takes in that phrase in verse 27. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. This isn't the case of the master bending down and saying, let's give a treat to a little puppy here. That's not, that's not the picture. The picture she has is that the people aren't even paying attention to the dogs. They're just eating on the table. And somebody, you know, moves the tablecloth or something and some crumbs fall off and the dog comes in and licks them off. This is not an intention. In other words, she recognizes that there's a blessing to be had almost as a peripheral incidental to the plan of God for Israel. And of course, Paul develops this theme in, in Romans 11, that we are the branch, you know, that's been grafted in, but we're not the natural branch, we're the grafted in branch, respecting this Jewish tradition that you can't escape from reading the Bible. So here, she submits. She says, okay, I'm a dog. But even a dog can, uh, can re eat the crumbs from the master's table. Now look at the response. Look at this response on the Lord's part. Because he knew this was going to happen. And he was just trying to bring this out of her, like he does works with us. The Lord Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done to you as it wish. And his daughter was healed at once. So he recognizes that in the statement of verse 27, that she had perceived who he was, she linked him with the salvation to the world, she realized that salvation to the world comes through the Jewish nation, she respected that, she didn't challenge it, she didn't put her Gentileness over against her Ju Judaism, and said, well, I believe in equal rights. See, it's none of that, that snotty kind of stuff. The chip on the shoulder approach. Well, you owe me one. No, he doesn't owe anybody one. She submits completely to the Lord's prerogative. If that's the way God has designed the plan of salvation, I salute and say, yes, sir, and I go with it. I don't start dictating to God how he's going to save me or what's the right way to go about salvation. I submit to it because I know and I recognize the creator-creature distinction. All that's wrapped up in that wonderful verse, in that wonderful verse 27. She, she had her theology together. But the point we're seeing is that the Lord Jesus Christ could be very abrupt. He, at several times, um, one of the good places, let's turn back to Matthew 12:48. another situation that we might look at. I do this just so we don't get some false impression of, of Jesus' personality. Verse 47, or verse 46, actually, of Matthew 12. Now it's his own family. Watch this one. He was still speaking to the multitudes, and his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Now, with all due respect to the Roman Catholic Church, the Lord Jesus Christ did have sisters and brothers. These are not the disciples. The disciples are with him already, and these are his physical brothers. Mary did have other children. These are his physical brothers coming to see him. And in verse 47, someone said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to talk to you. But he answered to the one who was telling him, presumably one of the apostles, 
and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand to his disciples said, Look, those are my mother and my brothers. But whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now one of the interesting facts of history, when he said these statements, the, probably the only believer in his family was his mother. His sisters and his brothers, presumably in the Gospels from their behavior, notes on their behavior, none of them believed in him. And that's a source actually of good encouragement because you may come in a, in a family where you know, you've been faithful to witness to the Lord and, and live the Christian life is, you know, pretty well, and yet nothing happens. The family just goes on its merry way to hell, literally. And you, you begin to get a sense, and often Satan will do this to you, of uh, throwing you the curveball, it's, it's your fault. You know. it's not, you're not living the life right. And it's your fault that they don't become Christians. And it's your fault that you screwed up. Well, if that's so, how do you explain this one? The Lord Jesus Christ screwed up, maybe? Didn't live the Christ life? In front of his brothers and sisters? That's why they didn't believe? That can't be. See how silly that reasoning is? And this refutes that kind of reasoning. They didn't become Christians, the ones who did, until after the resurrection, presumably. We don't have all detailed notes. But there's not any evidence of it in the Gospels other than his mother, Mary. So he, he tends to be kind of um, surprisingly non-Jewish in the way he handles his own family. There were just these startling things about the way he acted and things he said that bothered people, including the people who wrote the New Testament, because they're recording these events. And somewhere the Holy Spirit laid it on Matthew's heart Oh, Matthew, while he's writing, oh yeah, I remember that. I want to write about this. I, you know, I was there when that happened. And I want you readers of my gospel to see what I observed of the Lord Jesus. And here's one of the things that happened one day. And I want to tell you about it. So he puts it in the gospels. And under the power of the Holy Spirit, that's in the gospels to show us the portrait of Christ. So this is all has to do with this question of the impeccability of Christ. His perfection, his moral perfection. The Lord Jesus had to, as a human being, be sanctified. Let's, um, let's look at this from the standpoint of what we've learned so far in the hypostatic union. In the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ is God. And Jesus Christ is man. As God, he doesn't need more holiness. As God, he is complete in every way. We go through the attributes of God. God is sovereign. God is love. God is holy. God is omniscient. God's holiness doesn't have to be added, purified, or perfected. God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Another divine attribute. So since God is immutable and he's holy, his holiness doesn't need to change. There's no growth process in God. But as Jesus Christ was a man who grew physically, he also grew in righteousness. We'll call God's absolute righteousness. Plus, plus R. That's God's righteousness. He grew in that. How did he grow in that? He grew in that by, at various points in his life, he obeyed. 
Here was an issue. He obeyed. Here was another thing. He obeyed. Here was a trial. He trusted the Lord. Here was something else. He trusted the Lord. Here he obeyed God's will. And so forth and so on. This went on and on and on and on. He spent time with the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 50, the Lord, Je the Lord Jesus Christ was woken up in the morning, says Isaiah. The Father would call to him and teach him in the morning. Every morning, morning by morning, he would do this. So he was always... In, in, uh, looking at scripture he was always discerning in his humanity the father's will he knew the bible like no one has ever learned the scriptures tremendous student of the word of God and so he's growing in righteousness the point is that Jesus had to be sanctified and there are passages in scripture that prove that in the book of Hebrews you can see many, several passages that speak of that process so what we want to do is carefully remember back at when we were studying the Old Testament, we went through this doctrine of sanctification. And we remember we went through various parts of it. We said there's the position, the Abrahamic covenant promises, that is, that's not going to change. That's our position under God where we stand. Jesus had a position under God in God's plan. But Jesus Christ also had experience such as the Sinaitic Covenant. Remember in the Old Testament we stayed the Sinaitic Covenant and Israel was given things to do, to respond to. Jesus was given things to do and respond to. In fact, the Sinaitic Law he knew and he had to apply that in his life perfectly. We said the aim of sanctification is to develop loyalty to God. And that's true of the Lord Jesus. He had to develop loyalty to God. didn't come with it all there. He built it with his faith and his obedience. He utilized law and grace. Now, grace is somewhat problematical to use that word in Jesus Christ's case because he really didn't need grace as we define grace here. Grace is God's initiative towards sinners because he wasn't a sinner. He had, he had long-term growth. He also had the enemies of sanctification. So all that was true of the Lord Jesus as it is true of us and it's precisely that analogy because he is a man because he is a man that means that the Lord Jesus Christ can correctly be called the role model. He gives us a model of what righteousness looks like for a person. Now where his sanctification and our sanctification are different concerns the issue of sin. Remember when we studied David's life? Conviction of sin. We have to be convinced of a specific offense toward God. Then confess the sin. A repentant turning from autonomy to submission to the cross as the sole point of contact with God. And restoration, eternal forgiveness of God through the cross. Now, Jesus never did that. Jesus never confessed sin. Jesus never had to confess sin. So that part of that subset of sanctification, he never dealt with. Never had to. But the rest of the sanctification, he did. And Jesus Christ, in his humanity, was sanctified. So on page 63 of the notes, we define the doctrine of impeccability, and we said that theologians have, have done it two ways. And we had a great deal of discussion about this last time, uh, primarily because of the vocabulary. In our discussion, it was cl clarified, uh, uh, Debbie pointed out that a way to visualize this is uh, that Jesus Christ was 
um, not able to sin in the sense a father who loved a child was not able to hurt the child. That gets more the substance and the meaning of what's going on here. But theologians classically have used these Latin phrases, so that's why I use the Latin phrases. And one of them is non posi peccari, not able to sin. And the other one is posi non peccari, able, able not to sin. Not able to sin means something different from able not to sin. Able not to sin means that the Lord Jesus Christ, if He's that, He is like Adam. He is able not to sin. And there's a possibility that He would sin. So, we come to this situation, fork in the road, where we can go plus or minus. Now, being able not to sin means He can go to, the, go to this, this route, this positive route. He is able to go on that route. But not able to sin is stronger in that it says he will never go the negative route. The problem is, if he is not able to go the negative route, has there been a temptation? And that's what theologians have struggled to say. So this is why on page 64 we said that if you think of it in terms of human responsibility and divine sovereignty, it helps. Because the first thing, able not to sin, is clearly and undeniably a human situation. Able not to sin. Not able to sin has as its meaning the fact that in the plan of God, it was certain by God's sovereign setup that the Lord Jesus Christ would never sin. And that's His sovereignty. What happens is, if you combine God's sovereignty and human volition in the same person, you've got them united in one person. So how, as God, Jesus Christ is not able to sin. As man, He is able not to sin. So, because they're in one person, however, both statements have to apply. And that's where the theologians make that point about not able to sin. It's, it's not quite saying what it sounds like it's saying. And that's why on page 8064, the paragraph, the fourth paragraph, uh, if you'll look at that where I've underlined first and second statements, you'll remember that, that the first statement above, not able to sin, refers to the uncreated, uncreated, remember created creature distinction, always thinking created creature distinction. Not able to sin refers to the uncreated divine nature. The verb able, watch it now, the verb able here takes on meaning from divine sovereignty. In the second statement, able not to sin refers to created human nature. In this statement, the verb able takes on meaning from human experience. Because of the hypostatic union, both must apply to Jesus Christ. The verb able, therefore, has different meanings in the two statements. And this is what happens to us in a lot of discussions, and it's going to happen, it's going to, we're going to be wound up around an axle in the fall about this, about the death of Christ, for whom did Christ die? People like to make a big issue out of this. And I've often sensed that we're talking by one another when we talk this way. And I get, I've always gotten that feeling, and it comes about because of meanings that we're carrying into these words. Got to be careful about that. You see, what happens, 
If you look at that sentence I said, the verb to be able, what happens is, and this is a good illustration, by the way, of pagan logic versus biblical logic or Aristotelian logic against Trinitarian. People say, what do you mean by two different logics? Here's an example of what we're talking about. If you think of this verb as having a fixed meaning, ability, fixed meaning, and you're going to apply it to the dog, to the cat, to a person, and to God, and you say that that verb, able, carries the same meaning when I use it for the, to the cat, the dog, my sister, my brother, and God, you're wrong. That verb does not carry the same meaning because you're using it as a universal. And underneath the universal, both God, man, cats, and dogs exist. Now you see what happened? Continuity of being. You've slipped into paganism unintentionally. And we've talked about that, and that might have seemed abstract to you before. We kept saying continuity of being, continuity of being. Here's an example right here. We've got this abstract verb, able, and we think it has this impregnable, stable meaning wherever it's used and in whatever context it's used. And then we proceed to jam it on the cat, we jam it on a person, and we jam it on God. And then we say, ooh, we got a contradiction here. See, we wound up with a contradiction. How can he, Jesus be able and not able? See, the Bible has contradictions in it. Well, what's the answer to this? The answer is that the verb able takes on its color depending which side of the creator-creature distinction you're talking about. The creator-creature distinction is primary and this verb has to submit to that distinction. The creator-creature distinction precedes universal meanings of words. It submits to them. So when I use the word able for God, I do not mean the same thing as I mean when able is referring to man. Now, let's see the verse in the Old Testament that centrally points this out. Just because it's going to come up again and again and again, we might as well just clarify the air here. So if you turn to the middle of the Old Testament to Isaiah, chapter 40, it's a critical Old Testament chapter that deals with the creator-creature distinction. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, this is the warning against the pagan use of logic where we invent universal meanings of words and we apply them across the board as though it always means the same thing in different contexts. That's not true. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. This blows it out of the water right here. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal? That's the challenge God offers us. He says, if you think that I am like something in the identical way, that I possess qualities that are identical to the creature, you're mistaken. If that were true, you could make idols. And he doesn't permit us to make idols. The second commandment, which we don't normally talk about, what is the second commandment? Making an image of God. And it's forbidden. God is a creator and everything else is created. And words do not mean and cannot be applied the same way. Now, there's similarities. If there were no similarities, then we would know nothing about what God is like. 
He is like, His sovereignty is like our act of choosing. That's true. It's like it. But it's not the same thing. Think about it for a moment. We walk along with our chooser. And we walk in the midst of what? What do we walk in the midst of? We walk in the midst of circumstances. We walk in the midst of a body that is, that is runs by biological mechanisms. We, we breathe air that's full of molecular physics. We come into an environment, and within that environment, we choose. But do we have total control over the environment like God in His sovereignty does? Surely not. So therefore, isn't it true that choice means different when God chooses than when man chooses? Can you take that word, choose, and say that that word means the same thing when God chooses and when man chooses? No, you can't. Not if you're going to respect the Scripture. So the problem we're getting into here is we have to be very careful in how we use words when we cross over from God to man, man to God, God to man, man to God. Every time you do that, you better think. And because God is incomprehensible and mysterious, we are totally dependent on the Scripture for guidance. We have no other source of what He's really like, except what He's told us that He's like. We can sit here and endlessly speculate what God is like, but that's just us. We're down here as creatures. So therefore, we, that's the argument for why we have to go to Scripture as our only and total authority. If the Scriptures are not our total and complete and final authority, then we're left with speculation, which gets into the next doctrine we're going to look at very shortly here. So hopefully maybe that, that clears up some of the problems. Granted, this doesn't, you don't feel totally comfortable with this, like you don't feel totally comfortable with the Trinity. How can God be three in one? But that discomfort that you feel is actually a testimony to your finiteness and your creaturehood. That discomfort means that finally in the last analysis, I can't get at the total view. I can't get in God's chair and look out at everything the way He looks out. And there's that within me, because what does Ecclesiastes 3.11 says? What does He put in our hearts? the sense of eternity, a sense of divinity. He's put in our hearts. But then uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11 goes on and says, but we cannot find out the end from the beginning. So that tension that you feel, oh, gee, I just want to get this explained somehow. And we never can get it totally explained. That's good. Because if we could get it totally explained, it would mean we understand God as He understands Himself, and that implies that we're omniscient. So we have to be careful. We, we have to be accurate. I'm not arguing for sloppiness here. I'm just arguing for a sense of humility about what our capacities are in our understanding. Remember? Cardinal virtue of humility. And I have to take my place as a creature. And you have to take your place as a creature underneath God and say, I understand this about you, God. I understand this about you, God. Straighten out my thinking if it's screwed up. But I will never totally understand you. And you know what? That means that in eternity, in heaven, it will never be a dull and boring place. There are an infinite number of lessons to learn about God endlessly. A well that will never run dry of mysteries, of surprises, of things we never dreamed of that He pulls off 
forever and ever, over and over again. A new drama every day. A new act. An act that follows that act. And it just goes on and on and on. Never ending. Because our God is an infinite source of drama. All right. So that's the impeccability issue. And the bottom line of impeccability, if we want to get on bottom of page 65, we, we covered that graph last time about the, the temptation pressure. Bottom of page 65 is the implications. And we want to remember on page 66, I cover the three implications. Now, there are more, but this is just to show you the value of this doctrine, that it's not theory, it's not for the theologian in abstract ivory tower. This truth is revealed in Scripture for a very important reason. And how you get these implications, a good way to study Scripture so you, you whenever you try to learn a doctrine, always learn it in the context of the passage it appears in. Where is kenosis? Remember the doctrine of kenosis appears in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. So if you want to see the way the Holy Spirit intended the truth to apply is to go back to the context of Philippians 2, 5 through 8 and say, what was Paul talking about then? That he burst forth with all this truth. You know, Paul was the kind of guy that I think if you asked him how he brushed his teeth in the morning, you would come up with some big long dissertation about how Christ died on the cross and the Trinity. Because for him, all truth was related. There was no, no such thing as mundane, trivial stuff. Okay, here are some of the implications then of Christ's perfection. In the first place, it reveals something about evil and human responsibility. Often well-intentioned Christians try to answer the evil problem by claiming that it was necessary corollary to having genuine human choice in history. In Jesus' case, there was genuine choice without evil, right? We agree to that. Human existence without evil. Was Jesus supposed to sin in order to prove he wasn't a robot? Well, surely not. To err is not necessary quality of being human. You hear that expression, you know, to err is to be human? People use it all the time. Next time you hear that, you say, well, not necessarily. I know one exception. It's a wonderful conversation over the gospel because it allows you to, to, to all of a sudden to stop somebody short and then now they're asking you. You don't have to shove it down their throat. They're asking for it. So they open their mouth, you put it in. It's like a baby. Sit there. You want a spoon? Boom. Okay. Second, very practical illustration, implication of impeccability follows from the first. If created humanity does not require evil, and if Jesus was the test case that proves this in history, then what happens when we share his nature? You got the question now? Jesus Christ's nature is perfect. If it's really perfect and proven out to be perfect in history, what happens when we share that nature? And this sets up certain passages in the New Testament that if you don't go along with this thing, you're going to have trouble with some New Testament passages because this bursts forth again in the New Testament, the epistles, and interpreters of the Bible go, oh, you, you hit Greece when you look at some, what people say about some of these passages. So let's turn to one of the troubled passages, 1 John 3. Because this talks about the nature of Christ in the believer. And it says something that's troubling.
Okay, 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. That's talking about His impeccability. See, now we've got a vocabulary where we can attach a doctrine to that passage. So when we read it, we're now we, we've got some substance here now. We can connect it and link it. In Him there is no sin. Next verse. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Now that seems to lay an impossible burden upon Christians. Actually, we have to get into this next, next year when we get into the epistles, but this is a case where the solution to that interpretation of that passage it hinges on this impeccable nature of Jesus Christ. And when he says that no one abides in him as sins, he's talking about when the Christ nature manifests, it never sins. When it's manifested. And of course, we can sin because John tells us. John isn't teaching perfectionism here because we know from his first chapter, he says if we say we haven't sinned, we lie. So it's not perfectionism that is taught of, our, of us. But it is a perfectionism of the nature of Jesus Christ that He manifests through us. The problem is we truncate it, we grieve the Spirit, we get out of fellowship, we stop the filling of the Spirit, and so on. So we, we wall it up and limit it. But the life of Christ remains impeccable, just as it was in the Gospels. That is impeccable. And that's the thing that John latched onto. And John says this more times in his writings, probably because John was so impressed with Jesus. He, he was the closest apostle to him. Think of who John is here. He saw an awful lot of the impeccability of Christ. And he really had a firm grasp of this. So when he talks about Christ's nature, he's got to hold, continue that idea of impeccability. The other third implication of impeccability is that it demonstrates that you can get God's qualities and man quality together. You know, so often we say, well, gee, God's sovereignty is incompatible with free choice. That's because free choice is defined wrong. But for some reason, human choice and sovereignty work fine with Jesus. You see why Paul said in Colossians 2.18, you've got to start your philosophy and your serious thinking and your categories with what? Not according to the elements, the stoichia, the basic categories of the world, he said. Don't start there. You'll be deceived. Start with Jesus Christ. And by Jesus Christ, he wasn't talking about some uh, you know, Jesus stories. He's talking about the hypostatic union and all the truths of Christology here. That's where you start. And you're, whatever you do philosophically, you better be sure that it fits the yardstick of the hypostatic union. So however you define human choice and God's sovereignty, you've got to un, you, your definitions have to fit the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he wasn't, he wasn't schizo. These two things weren't fighting each other. They, they came along perfectly. Well, how do, we, how do we do that? Well, we better fix our words up when we talk about human responsibility and divine sovereignty so they work out because it did in his case. That's why the hypostatic union is so central to all of these truths and discussions. Okay, now we come to a new truth tonight, and we're going to look a little bit at 
in the third doctrine. We've talked about the doctrine of kenosis, the doctrine of impeccability, Christ's perfection. Now flowing out of that is the doctrine of infallibility. Did Jesus, even though he was morally, here's the argument now, because evangelicals are slipping on this all over the board, so pay attention to what's happening. The argument is, yeah, yeah, I'll agree that Jesus was moral and ethically correct. No mistake, no problem there. But, you know, Jesus, he lived in the first century, you know. I mean, he had a first century view. And, and in the first century, people believed strange things about the universe. So, Jesus didn't intend to do this. I mean, he couldn't help it. He was just a human being walking around the first century, and he just articulated first century views that we now know are wrong. Jesus, in other words, committed what they call technical errors. And the argument of evangelicals who are bought into this errancy, we used to laugh at him at seminary. We used to call one of the guys that made books about this in the 70s and 60s was a guy named Dewey Beagle. And he wrote in Southern Baptist circles about trying to get the Southern Baptists to believe in an errant Bible. Not an inerrant Bible, an errant Bible. Got to come of age, Baptist. You guys got to get along now here and, and get with the program. I mean, the Methodists have gone this way. The liberal Presbyterians have gone this way. So I don't know why you Baptists can't also agree with the whole thing and start, start going along with the same train. And you guys got to recognize that Jesus made mistakes. Jesus made technical errors. So we used to say of Dewey Beagle that he believes the Bible, errors and all. Now, infallibility deals with this issue. Did Jesus make technical errors? If he made technical errors, does that violate impeccability? They claim no. They claim he can be innocently ignorant. Okay? You see the thrust of the... I'm, I'm just trying to show you the, the siren song of, the, of this position. Jesus can make technical errors, but he didn't intend to do that. But that didn't bother his impeccability. Well, let's look at this. We noted, bottom page 66, remember when we studied Revelation? Remember what the event was in the Old Testament where we kind of linked that doctrine to an event? Remember the event? Giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Revelation. Revelation has certain characteristics. We said it's verbal... Thoughts are transferred in Revelation, not just feelings. It's personal. I'm not listening to the printout of a computer. I'm listening to the words of a human being or a person. It's historical. It's not abstract. It's not theoretical. It, it walked around the planet. I mean, God speaks in the planet in human languages. If you had a tape recording, you would have heard God speaking in the Hebrew language. It's comprehensive. Remember the Mosaic Law dealt with every aspect of society? Did it deal with sanitation? Yes. Did it deal with the clothing? Yes. Now, why did it deal with all those other issues? Why didn't it just talk about worship? Because truth is interrelated. The diet and the clothing and all the rest went along with worship because where do we worship? With clothes. We walk around every day in the practical world with all these things. World is one in the sense of the truthfulness of it, if God is creator. So if I'm dealing with the physics of this microphone and the electronics of this cable, I'm just as much dealing with a handiwork of God 
and the laws by which he made this than I am when I'm sitting here praying. Because he's the creator of all. So when he talks about something, as the creator, he means to conclude everything. And it's prophetic, the other characters that we learn. That is, it looks into the future and tells us things that are beyond the human horizon. Now the question is, we'll look on page 67, and we want to spend most of the time tonight on this section. It goes on page 67, 68. Jesus' historical and scientific claims. If you follow that paragraph, uh, I won't go to those verses because we've gone over those verses before, and I think it'll be obvious to you. Since Revelation necessarily comprehensive, it should be no surprise that Jesus spoke about many things open to historical and scientific investigation. Did he err in doing so? Was he right in affirming that Genesis 1 and 2 both form a coherent account of creation? Turn to Matthew 19. Let's look at that passage again in the light of what our kids get in college. Every year, somebody in Fellowship Chapel, either... The, the person who's going to college or the parents of the, per, the person who's paying the tuition comes to me and says, you know, oh, you, can you imagine what they're teaching? They're teaching that there's conflicts in the Bible. No kidding. They've been doing that for about 240 years. You know, wake up. That's the world system. Satan is not going to allow this book to stand unopposed. And he's going to use every trick that he can think of to undermine the text. And when your kids go to school and they can go to Christian schools and get the same kind of crap that they get from the secular schools. The only difference is in Christian school you pay more for it. It's disgusting. Some local Christian schools teach the same stuff that you can get at Princeton, Harvard. That's ridiculous. And these people are living off the contributions of God-fearing families who have saved money so that their kids could get a Christian education and they go to a Christian campus and they hear, well, there's, we, we don't really believe that Genesis 1 and 2 really go together. Now, now we're not really saying that Jesus made a mistake here, but, but we know now things that Jesus didn't know. Oh, really? What are we going to learn in the 21st century that there's no such thing as sin? Maybe it's a psychological disturbance on the seventh gene. Did Jesus didn't know that, so he went and died for it. So let's look at Matthew 19. Here he is. He's dealing with a divorce issue. Verse 4 through 6. And he answered and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? What chapter of Genesis is that quoted from? Genesis 1. Next verse. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what chapter of Genesis is that quoted from? Two. Ooh. How can he do that if they're two separate accounts? The Lord Jesus clearly said, he's building a doctrine here, folks, you know. He's in the middle of the discussion of defining what marriage and divorce is, and he's building the doctrine on the assumption that Genesis 1 and 2 are logically compatible. Poor Jesus, he didn't have his Ph.D. from Tübingen. Or else he would have known New Testament criticism better than that. Okay? Now Jesus is articulating clearly the orthodox conservative belief in Genesis here. So on the notes, 
I give you three or four more instances. Was he right in believing in a literal Abel, the son of a literal Adam? He did. Matthew 23:35. It's all there in the open text. Not hiding. Did Jesus speak the truth about a literal flood with a literal Noah? Did he correctly insist on the Mosaic authorship of the law? No, no Old Testament professor today, outside of the godly men who are teaching in a few good Christian schools, nobody today in scholarship circles into Old Testament believes that Moses wrote the law. Nobody. It's just the remnant, the faithful few, not because they're super intelligent, but because they've bought into an entire worldview. Your children going to college, 90% probably, they'll take a course in religion or something like this, and they will have it shredded, the Mosaic authorship of the law. Not, not believed at all. Jesus did. So now let's watch what happens here. We've got a little tension setting up because when you get Christians... See, what happens is you, we all have arrogance built into us because of the fall of man. But what happens is when you get in academia, there's a certain kind of arrogance that can easily creep into your soul. Your promotions in academia come from what? Publications. Your acceptability with whom? With the peers. Who are your peers? People on the faculty. How do you get stature in academia? By publishing papers. Before the papers can be published, what has to happen? Editors have to look at them. See? Yeah. And if they see and they smell something not quite right, you don't get published because there's 15 other papers competing for that position in the publication. You don't make it. Now what happens to your resume when you want to teach at a college? Well, how many papers have you published recently? Oh, none. Well, gee, someone else will put in that position. So you see, it's a system that feeds on itself. And it's very, very difficult for godly men and godly women on faculties to have some of the great unsung heroes of our time are on faculties in this country. They engage every single day of their life for the career, their career hangs on this for their defense of the faith. And that's what's going on here. So when you get Christians who want academic respectability, they've got to finally make a decision because it's going to come a time when they're going to have to decide, do I want my academic credentials more than I want my loyalty to Jesus Christ? And the pressure is on. I'm not making light of that. I'm not saying I would do better. I'm simply observing. I've seen it. I've watched it for 30 to 40 years. Well, here comes an example of it right here. G.C. Burkauer. He's a Reformed theologian taught in Holland. Holland, by the way, was the only country in Europe to be ruled by a man who was a godly theologian at the turn of the century. Holland was ruled by a man who uh, wrote the standard text on the Holy Spirit. This man was, uh, was a, there's a whole series of godly Christians in Holland, Eric von Prinsterer and, and so on, a whole series of people. And they had a very strong influence historically in Holland. Then, of course, came World War I and World War II, and now there are uh, more prostitutes, I guess, in Holland, according to military friends of mine, than there are all over Europe together. It's just a country that's gone downhill. In Holland now, if you've noticed in the newspapers, they've already authorized doctors to poison people to death. That is a normal act of the medical profession. They help you live and they help you die. And, you know, whatever switch you want turn, they turn it. 
Um, mercy killing is legal in Holland today. That's a country that has more light than any other country in Europe in the last 200 years. And that's what they've done to it. And we see the same thing going on, creeping into our own country. Well, Burkhauer was over there, and he was this reformed theologian, and he wanted a lot of respectability among his peers. So he had a lot of Christians that liked some of the stuff he wrote. It was great. But you know what they say about snake venom? It's 90% protein. It's the 4 or 5% of venom that bothers you. So Burkhauer argued that one must distinguish, notice what's happening here, distinguish sin, which involves willful turning from the truth, from technical error, which involves ignorance and misinformation. You see the door that he's created now? He thinks by making that distinction, he can side with the higher critics of the Bible against Jesus and yet also somehow call himself a Christian by believing in Jesus' impeccability and his sinlessness. Jesus might have been impeccable and the perfectly righteous one, according to this view, but he was not necessarily free in his humanity from ignorance and misinformation. Jesus' belief in a literal Adam, Burkhauer thinks, is an instance of a technical error. The purpose of the Bible, in Jesus, Burkhauer writes, now watch this one. This is a key phrase. This is, Dewey Beagle says it in his book. All the evangelicals that push this view say the same thing. When you challenge them, what is the purpose of the Bible then? Well, they've got to define the purpose of the Bible such that I can disbelieve Genesis without impinging on the purpose of the Bible. So see what has to happen? They've got to define purpose of the Bible so they can also have errors in the Bible without violating the purpose of the Bible. So here's how they do it. He writes, is not at all to, no, the purpose of the Bible is not to provide scientific gnosis or knowledge in order to convey and increase human knowledge and wisdom, but to witness of the salvation of God unto faith. Now you'll have to think about that for a while. I, I, you know, this is something you have to think about. But you watch, there's some, there's some greasy words being used in there. It's true, isn't it, that we, we're saying the purpose of the Bible is not to make everyone fat-headed. That's not the, the purpose of Scripture. But, somehow, he says, you can have but it's to witness of the salvation of God unto faith. Occurrence of technical errors, he supposes, does not hinder the purpose of the Bible if that sentence describes the purpose of the Bible. Okay. According to such critics, Jesus' righteousness coexists with ignorance that causes technical errors. Can this be true? It is certainly true of ourselves. The limitations of human knowledge jeopardize every thought and statement we make. Is it true, however, of Jesus? If Jesus functions as a prophet of revelation, as one who carries out God's prosecution against those breaking His covenants, remember, and we're running out of time tonight, so let me just kind of summarized by this. What did we learn in the Old Testament? Remember I said, pay attention in the Old Testament to definition of prophets because we're going to pick it up later. Well, now we're picking it up. What was the definition of a prophet? What was the function of those prophets? They didn't go around and just say they weren't ethical commentators. We said they were involved in something else. What was the standard the prophets used? The Mosaic Law Code. And what was that code? That was a contract between Yahweh and Israel. Now, what were, the pro what were the prophets doing? P, P, prosecuting attorneys. 
under God the Holy Spirit, they prosecuted violations by Israel of that contract. That was their function. Remember we showed how Isaiah would harp back to Deuteronomy 32 and he had that same format. He's carrying out the same kind of things. Oh heavens, oh earth, here. I'm going to present my case. The prophet, speaking for God, prosecuted the nation for its sin. Now, in order to carry out the prosecution, think of a courtroom. And we'll pick this up next week. In a courtroom, how does a prosecuting attorney, or any lawyer, defense attorney too, for that matter, Involved in a courtroom situation, what do they want to do to the witnesses? If you're called up, I was called up in a murder trial a couple of years ago, and uh, I was a witness because some kids gang-raped a girl down in Edgewood and threw her out in the backyard, and the poor girl died of hypothermia. And the question was whether the weather was cold enough to cause hypothermia. So here I was in the witness stand, and and the, the... the county attorney was saying, Mr. Clough, do you want to do that, blah, 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 and what was the temperature, and so on and so forth. And then the defense attorney got on. Now, he did his best to try to undercut my temperature data for that night. And I stopped him cold with the fact that I happened to calibrate all my instruments at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And you want to argue with them, go ahead. Well, you know, and then we went to something else. But the point was that what does a lawyer try to do? If he can't, if you're testifying to something, he tries to take this apart by attacking you over here or over here or over here. His the idea is to sow doubt in the in the minds of the jury, isn't it, of the credibility of the witness. Now he might not be able to sow doubt directly on what you observed about the crime. But if he can show that you can't even observe what color Mrs. Jean wore Tuesday, he's, what is he doing? He's saying, you're sloppy. Now, if you're sloppy over here, and you're sloppy over here, and you can't get this straight, are we to believe you when you say that Joe killed Jim? You know, maybe you were seeing things. You regularly do that, maybe. So, the idea is to destroy the testimony. Now, we'll conclude by turning to John chapter 3 a moment. Because you'll see the difficulty immediately with this false view of Scripture. In John chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus recognizes this. And what does he say in verse 12? If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? His point was, if I tell you and I talk about things that you on earth can observe and check out, and you don't believe me there, how are you, when I tell you your sins are forgiven, what are you going to do? Go to heaven on a rocket and check your accounting books? How are you going to do that? You can't observe that. You have to take my word for it. Now, if you've shown that I can't get my history straight, and you've shown that I've made technical errors all over the board, how can you trust me when I offer you salvation for all eternity? See, it doesn't go together. We'll come back to that next week, but you can see the line of logic that we're pursuing here. is that because of the contextual purpose of Jesus Christ and the prophets, They can't be allowed to make technical errors because it's in the area of the technical errors where the history is. 
If Isaiah can't get his history right, how can he get the circumstances right to prosecute the nation? Because, remember we said, this is why you open up the Old Testament sometimes and you wonder, what is all this? What are these boundary markers? Well, what's all this land business going on? What's, I mean, it sounds like a real estate deal going on. Yeah, it is. What well, was one of the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant? You will inherit the land. Tribes had to be in certain lands. What's the proof of it? Land records. Oh, that's why those scriptures are in here. I always thought they were in there, you know, so you could sleep while the pastor was reading the Bible, and then when you got to a good spot, you'd wake up. No, those land records are in there so that it's a testimony factually to God's faithfulness. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for infallibility because it means we don't have to be infallible. We can rest, we can relax, we can trust in your finished, your complete plan of salvation and the scriptures that reveal this plan to us being totally trustworthy, warrant our faith. Increase our faith, O Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, I guess we have a few minutes here, maybe 10 or 15 minutes tonight. Ran late, but we had to, I had to get into that first part on infallibility. Um, are there any questions about anything tonight that we'd like to talk to? Mike? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, Mike perceived, uh, correctly so, that in the classic doctrine of impeccability, that's not my definition, it's the one that, uh, that's where we get into these, these are definitions that have been passed down from, through over the years, um, that in the definition of kenosis, why do we say Christ gave up the independent use of his attributes um, when it sound, when you couldn't imagine him independently anyway. What, what's the deal? Well, unfortunately, we're the, with that word independent, we're at the same place we were with the verb able. It's how that word is used when it's used on the creator's side of the equation. And the idea that what they're trying to say, when you get into this, you, you have to appreciate the battle that was being fought when that statement was made because it's, they're always imbalanced somewhat because they were fighting a war at the time and they had to suppress. I mean, this is why Reformed, uh, there's a reaction against Reformed thought and, and some of it's justified in that the Reformation tried so hard to crush humanism uh, that it played heavy on the sovereignty of God. I mean, that was the thing that chopped off all this chance in business. And unfortunately, then what happened is, well, then that kind of went, it was a good idea. It went to seed and it destroyed evangelism and missions. And you just had to get balanced, balanced up again. And that's the trouble with all these statements. They can all be pushed to illegitimate things. The point that was at stake here in kenosis is 
they're trying to say that Jesus didn't in any way cease to be God. He emptied Himself of something. But whatever it was, He emptied Himself. It couldn't be His attributes. But that's happened in church history. That's how they, some theologians define kenosis when they started thinking about this, that He must have given up His omnipotence. He must have given up His omniscience. And they say, you know, I mean, he, he, he clearly didn't use it. He didn't use some of these attributes. He must not have had them. And then, and then they see that in, in like Hebrews 1, when it's talking about the ascent of Christ into heaven, and he was given to power to reign and everything, and they see that power to reign, that sort of passage, you know, when he sits at the Father's right hand. See, he was given back his omnipotence. Well, that's simply not... Correct. Jesus Christ manifested his omnipotence and his omniscience, and we gave some illustrations of that. Um, at, the same, at the time he was allowing police to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the middle of that action, for a split second, he let go with omnipotence. And he said, I am, and the police force fell backwards on the, on the, on the ground there. And then he went right on, and it's like omnipotence turned off, what I guess they're trying to say there is that the Lord Jesus Christ had to, in his humanity, and I guess maybe let's take a concrete specific so we can pick our heads. Let's picture the time that he was tempted and when he was very hungry. And let's at that point take, and here's Satan come and Satan says, you know, if you're, you know, you're hungry right now. And he was. There's no question that he was hungry. I mean, uh, you'd be 40 days without food. I think I'd be hungry. So, he was very hungry out to the point of starvation. And Satan says, it's easy for you. All you have to do is, you know, say the word. Stone turns to bread. Now, the appeal was made to something that he could have done in the sense that he had the power to do it in his omnipotence. But he refused to exercise that power due to the fact that the Father had outlined this plan for him. And it wasn't the Father's will for him to meet Satan in the power of his deity. It was God's will to meet Satan in the power of the Holy Spirit through his humanity so he'd be a model for us. So he had to then not utilize his omnipotence in that state when he was, uh, you could say that he had a legitimate right to oppose Satan. Now you could come back to me and say, well, yeah, but it's still the Father's plan that's going on there. And could you imagine the Trinity splitting apart in in a committee of three that can't agree? No, we can't. We have to hold to the unity of the Trinity. But that, whatever happens in those trials, that's what they're talking about there. That he chose to meet the trials in his humanity rather than face off Satan with full divine powers. Now, what happens? We don't really know what happens. So, to answer Mike's question, it's, it's a hedging, trying to avoid going off the road here. And that's what a lot of these statements are. They're hedges. We don't want to make that, and we don't want to do this, so they'll kind of get in here and stay with as much as we can with the Scriptures.
So that's all that is. And you're right. The, the word independent has a nasty ring to it. And it's the same as Debbie pointed out last week or last time we met when that non posti precari, posti non precari, she rightly pointed out that able has a, has a nasty ring to it too because when you say he is, able, he is not able to sin, the way we normally think of the word able there, it makes it look like there wasn't even a contest going on. So we grant you that. It's just please be aware that these words are difficult to use because we're talking about the creator across the creator-creature boundary line. And it's very difficult to, to phrase it right. Exactly. Uh, and it's, the simple thing is that we that we can't, you know, and acknowledge that we can't. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the limit that we understand that we've got to stop here, you know. Exactly. And we can't get to that other side. We don't know how the two things go together, but God, this is truth about God, even though we don't speak all of it together. Yeah. And uh, uh, Debbie's right. You, 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 the final bottom line is that what we want to do with our minds is we want to encompass the problem. And that desire, that desire to understand itself isn't wrong. What, where it gets wrong is when we insist that we're not going to believe and we're not going to obey and we're not going to do anything until we get it in our heads what's going on here. You know, we're going to postpone everything until we figure it out. Well, then that, we've transgressed something right there. That's arrogance. That's intellectual arrogance. The humility is, Lord, this is pretty neat and heavy stuff, and you are a wonderful God, and I'm amazed at you. You're majestic. That's the worship of God. That's what worshiping is. Yeah, Carol's brought up Romans 11, where he quotes. But you know what that quote is? It's not Paul, it's Isaiah. Isaiah 40, just above that passage we went to, that's where Paul got that from. See, he's, he's using Isaiah. But, but you're right, because in Romans 11, at the end, what does Paul do? You know, he, he has struggled with that all through Romans 9, 10, and 11. And he, he deals with all this heavy stuff and the Pharaoh hardening Pharaoh's heart, and he, he, he works through that. And then... Uh, after that three chapters of this stuff, what does he conclude with? Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable, unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Exclamation point. Now here's one of the greatest geniuses in the human race, because I really believe Paul was one of the greatest geniuses in the human race who had probably the deepest and most profound understanding of doctrine of any, any person we could have imagined outside of Jesus himself. And, and then, then he quotes uh, what Carol pointed out from Isaiah, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, uh, who has first given him that it might be paid back to him again. And then he concludes, from him 
through Him and to Him are all things, and to Him be glory forever. See, it's that recognition of the depths and the riches of the incomprehensibility of our God. And you just walk away in awe. And that's what He wants of us. Not that He doesn't want us to probe Him for those, for those things, because every time we dig, we find treasure. See? But the problem is, you never get to the end of the treasure. That's the problem. We want to get to the end of the tunnel so we can kind of get it together. But then what would happen? Let's imagine that we did that. Let's just do a thought experiment here. Let's imagine that we, ah, I got it. Got it. Clicks. Now I'm done. Now what do I do for the rest of eternity? See? And that's, so so you never arrive. That's the problem. You never arrive. And that's why we have those mysterious... Con- Remember, in the, uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago when we went through Job and we got into that suffering passage. And you remember, uh, Job is dealing with a problem of good and evil and uh, he, he's hurting, he's sick, and he's, he's lost everything. And you talk about a guy. You know, every church congregation has a Job family in it. From one time or another, I've, I've just watched this. A family just gets clobbered with one thing after another. And I've often thought we ought to really give out an annual Job Award because it just seems that, that people just get clobbered. And it doesn't come, you know, like one a month. It has to come five in one day. And, and that's what happened in Job's case. But when God comes to Job, remember we said, it sound, I mean, God, God comes to Job and he's like a, a freight train. This is not quite in the nice counseling session. Oh, what's your name? Um, and have you had a good day today? And let's, let's, talk, let's get to know one another. Touchy-feely kind of thing. And then we'll, we'll talk about your problems. Now he comes in and he says, Alright, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Answer me. Gird up your loins like a man. I'll ask you and you instruct me. Ooh. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? And then, bam, 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 I think I counted up 37 questions. And all of them are really questions that have no answer. So why does God do that? Why does He come in apparently so cruel, so rough? And I suggested that I think one reason He does that is because when we're hurting, when we're depressed, and when we're so stretched out, we are so emotionally wrapped up with our pain, with our sorrow, our resentments, our frustrations, and our depression. We're a basket case. We're immobilized. And I think what he's doing here is when you ask someone a question, what does the, that force... It's like serving a ball across the net. The question is the ball. And he knocks it into our court. What does he want us to do? Hit it back. But what do you have to do to hit it back? You have to think. Now you have to draw in the reservoirs of the Word of God in your heart. And you have to dig down and pull it out. And finally, after all this, then the Word of God is like blood. It begins to flow and get the circulation going and the emotions and the pain and sorrow kind of shed, lower down. So ironically, it's almost opposite to what modern counseling theory argues for. When the people came into the Collingswood or whatever the high school, what was the name of the high school, Laura, where the kids were shot? I forgot the name of it now. 
Columbine. Um, I read an article, I guess it was on Chuck Colson, was saying how professional grief counselors came in, ordered into the schools, and the kids were pushed and shoved. And, you know, you've got to go see the counselor, got to go see the, got to, got to get this grieving process going now. And, and they found out the kids weren't going to the counselors. Oh, well, how come the kids aren't going to the counselors? Well, because they've been going to their youth groups, to their churches, to their pastors. Oh, you didn't think about that. Well, the grief counselors, what can they do? On a secular basis, one of the techniques they use, if you're grieving over the loss of someone, you know what the technique is? To get you to emotionally cut your bonds with that person. That's how you get rid of it. That's their way of dealing with grief. Now, come on. If you've lost a loved one, is the solution to the pain, the sorrow, to just forget you ever knew them? I don't think so. I think you're fooling yourself. You can't. You can't let that person go that way. So what do you do? It gets back to the envelopment idea. You take the problem, like God does with Job, and you, you, can't, dis, you can't tear the problem up and throw it away. You can't push it out the door and get rid of it because it keeps coming back. So God encompasses the problem. It's like a cyst. He insists it with truth of Scripture. And then finally you begin to relax. And then the more you can relax and calm down, the more you can see, okay, I believe that he has a purpose for me for this. And I really do mean that. It's not that somebody quoted a verse and, eh, I believe that. Well, I really don't. But I believe, that. well, I really don't. It's not that give and take. It's really a depth, depth trust. But see, you don't get there in one step. It takes a process to get settled. And... That, that way God comes in like gangbusters there is, is his method of doing it. And you'll see Jesus do that same thing. He always starts out with questions. And I've just been impressed with it. Every time God maneuvers, it's, it's, what did he do in Adam's case? Remember? After the fall. What did he do? What was the first sentence out of God's mouth? Why are you there? Hey, you who? So what did that do? That was, the ba- that was the tennis ball. That was the racquetball. It was put over into his area now. Now it's yours. Go ahead. Hit it back to me. And that's what Jesus was doing with that woman tonight, wasn't he? He said something. He was being coy about it. He said, I'm going to put the ball in your court. Now you, you bang it back to me. And, and when, you, when God does that, you have to reach down with a paddle, pick the thing up, and bang it over, even though you don't feel like doing it but that he puts you in that position. And then once you do that, oh, I can do that. Oh, yeah. And Job in the end, after all these questions, he still doesn't get his questions answered, right? God never answers his question, but Job is able to relax. And that gets back to what we've been talking about tonight. We, we have these questions. We don't quite know how impeccability fits in, the hypostatic union. Oh, gee. But by concentrating on who he is, as our creator, we can come to rest. And it's not that we believe there's contradictions. See, the unbeliever thinks, his idea of what we're doing here is that, well, you've given up all hope of, of figuring it You've given up all hope of rationality. That's his position. That's not what we're saying. We believe in rationality. Surely God is rational. We believe in the reason. That's precisely why those kids went to their pastors in Denver. They went there because they were answering, why did this happen? There has to be a reason behind this massacre. Now, did any of the pastors have an answer? Well, not directly. 
I mean, we don't have a, like in Job chapter 1, we don't know what the counsels of heaven were and why those two kids were allowed to go shoot everybody. God didn't share that. But what happened when these kids went and, and started pouring out their heart to the Lord in prayer and, and getting it back? It was because finally, in the last analysis, you become persuaded, yes, there is a reason for this. Do I know it? No. But I know the one who knows it. And there you rest the case. But see, you can't do it quickly. And you can't do it while your emotions are tearing you up. You can't do it while you're all upset. There's a certain heart settling process that has to happen. And that's why God comes on like that. To it. So we've had to encounter it. We're going to do it again when we get into the death of Christ. And we're going to continue working infallibility, this technical error thing. Jesus did not make technical errors. We're going to show that. This, this fortunately, infallibility is going to be a lot easier to handle than kenosis and, and uh, impeccability. And, you know, witnesses to God's program don't make technical errors. Because if they do, they're disqualified as witnesses. So it's quite a simple way of, a simple logical reasoning once you understand the biblical view. Um, I think we've run out of time, but Tommy's sitting back there. <laughs>